Hello and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Amanda Vickery, who is Professor of Modern British History at Royal Holloway. Amanda is a former winner of the Wolfson Prize for History, awarded for her 1998 book, The Gentleman's Daughter, Women's Lives in Georgian England. Her new, beautifully illustrated and richly detailed book, Behind Closed Doors, tackles a related theme, what home meant for Georgian men and women, both physically and psychologically. Amanda shows that it was a period when many ideas we are familiar with today, the desire for privacy, the feminization of interiors, the commercialization of home furnishings, the emergence of the notion of taste, were becoming prominent. Early in the book, Amanda says, interiors do not easily offer up their secrets. I asked her to tell me why that is, and how she went about getting at those secrets. I think when I embarked on a project which was about the history of home and about interiors, physical and psychological interiors, I thought it would be quite a straightforward project that I would go into archives and that people would talk, describe their interiors and their problems, their difficulties uh, and their feelings and that you know, I would be able to knit that, you know, quilt that very beautifully into a book. But uh, the more record offices I went to, the more clear it became that people don't tend to write about their homes. Just as today, you know, when people sit down to write something, you tend to write about events. You don't write about the things that you take for granted. And that is absolutely the case for past records. So the problem is that the history of home hides in plain sight. It's so fundamental as to go without saying. An example of this is I was always very interested in capturing how men felt about home. And so I did a big survey of the archives and wrote to all the archives in England and Wales asking, uh, you know, what diaries do you have which comment on domestic life? And I got one letter back from uh, Cardiff saying, we've got a great diary in which a man, you know, debates and discusses, you know, his ideas about domestic life. So I went all the way to Cardiff and discovered that this, this diary of this Methodist preacher, all he says about home are the words at home. Monday, at home. <laughs> Tuesday, at home. Wednesday, at home. So therefore, it occurred to me, well, I'm just going to have to change tack. And I thought I'd have to be more versatile and and adaptable and think, well, what are the things which are likely to make men particularly, say, reflect on what home has been to them? And I thought, well, it would have to be some sort of catastrophe. And so then I started looking, for instance, at widowers' diaries, and suddenly it all comes pouring out. Widowers talk, you know, are prolix about the difficulties of life at home. In a way, that casts a sidelight on the silent satisfactions of, of married life for men. Other examples of approaches I had to take, I thought, well, when would men and women talk about what they believed home to be as couples? You know, they'd have to be separated in some way, otherwise you wouldn't find the material. And so I looked at a courtship correspondence at the moment when it's kind of coming to a final head, the making of the marriage, and then it became clear that setting up home is absolutely central to, well, an idea of setting up home, what that home's to be, is central to the solidification of a courtship and the making of a marriage. And that's when men lay out, you know, this is the kind of house I can offer you, and then the women come back and say, well, I don't like it like that, I think the kitchen should be like this. So they, therefore, in their letters, they detail what their expectations are of married life. But also, it became clear to me 
that it's part of the solidification of the match. And in working out their ideas about what the home is to be, women are testing the generosity of their men and the, women are, the, the men are assessing the domesticity of their women. And the home then becomes a kind of expression of that match, doesn't it? I think you say this, it, it's, it's sort of expressed and it's celebrated and it's made concrete. And I suppose that's, that, that's something we may sort of take for granted now, but was that something which was coming into being in this period? I think successful marriages solidify themselves, celebrate themselves and express themselves in their homes and in, in the decoration of their homes. I think one of the reasons why I wanted to stress that is a lot of the literature on consumerism has, uh, has argued about, oh, well, do people consume to keep up with the Joneses? Is it all about status? Is it all about occupational identity? Is it about where you live regionally? Is it about your attitude to novelty? But this aspect about matrimony seems to have been kind of thoroughly missed. But at the same time, as well as the household and the decoration of the interior, as well as it expressing successful matrimony, it can also express the reverse. After all, separation and divorce are the literal separation of the spoils and the, you know, the divvying up of the marriage. Now, for most people, their idea of the Georgian interior will have been shaped by visiting National Trust properties. And I think you issue a, a caveat in the book that, that that may be a misleading impression that they gain from going around a generously proportioned and nicely presented National Trust properties. Why is that? I think when you go around a National Trust property, for one thing, you go often in an odd circulation around the house. So you go around the house perhaps from the back servant's entry or something, not in the way you're supposed to march through the house when it was set up. So often it's hard to kind of understand what it is the house was trying to say at the time in terms of status to you, the visitor. But also areas are kind of roped off. It's, all, it's a museum. It feels very much like a museum and there's no sense that you can kind of sit down at any of the tables. By the same token, they're absolutely empty of life and neat and tidy and they don't smell and there's no, no noise of a household. All of those things are absolutely kind of central to what it was like to live in, in even quite grand 18th century houses. Women's letters are full of complaints about how awful it is, how freezing, this kind of stiff back ceremony, the noise, people coming in, a lack of privacy. And so I, I'd argue that one of the reasons why you get this proliferation of little rooms in the 18th century, which women particularly like, in dressing rooms and closets, is a response to the, you know, the endless publicity and the racket of life at home and the sheer lack of privacy. There's great obsession in the 18th century with locking keys, boxes, secret drawers, private desks. For the rich, there is an assumption that there will always be people trafficking through their rooms. And locksmiths advise employers. They say, well, you know, if it's your own fault if you leave any of your possessions kind of lying about and unlocked. You have put temptation before your servants, so you principally are to blame. The onus is on you to hide these precious things away from the gaze of the susceptible servants. So I suppose one of the, the things your book is trying to do is to repopulate the Georgian house if we've become used to this idea of them as rather empty, austere, bare places. I, mean, I was very struck by the fact that there would be spinsters in a, in a little room here or a sublet there or servants sleeping here, there and everywhere. So it's a really sort of attempt to repopulate the house. I think if you look, think about the interiors of um, 
Georgian townhouses, they'd be teeming, like um, a hive really, or, a, or a, almost a rabbit warren. We have this idea that, you know, we've got these pristine Georgian terraces and you know, with their immaculate exteriors. We have this idea of a kind of perfect Georgian uniformity. But inside, the majority of London houses were divided up into lodging rooms. On the ground floor, that would probably be the landlady and her family. The showier tenant had the first floor front room, perhaps less well-off tenants would be towards the back and on the second floor and the very very poorest would be either in the basement or in the garret. Hacks traditionally starve in the garret so the poet's always in the drafty garret and then also all those individual rooms kind of tend to lock. Sometimes the landlady has a key, sometimes she doesn't have a key but you'd be aware that there'd be you know people tramping up and down those stairs all the time. You'd be hearing the din through the walls. It's not unknown for uh, families to come to an arrangement with the house next door and knock, knock, knock a passageway through on the first floor. So it might look like you've got a kind of pristine terrace from the front, but inside you've got all sorts of odd connections. And let me turn to wallpaper now, because I was, I was fascinated by what you had to say about wallpaper and how you made the wallpaper speak, as it were, because there's so much is understood or implicit in the way people choose and buy wallpaper. Yes, I think that, you know, it, it makes kind of political historians laugh that I've devoted so much attention to wallpaper. And clearly wallpaper is a superficial thing. You know, it's all about surface. By the 19th century, if there's any reference to wallpapering in a novel, it's a sign that the person doing the wallpapering is a shallow, uh, meretricious person who uh, is only interested in veneer. Uh, but that's not the case for the 18th century. Uh, wallpaper is associated with kind of wholesomeness, cleanliness, and it's, it's a bargain. And that's one of the things which I think makes it, uh, made it so useful to me, really, in trying to get at what the more ordinary kind of middling consumers feel about decoration. So wallpaper is comparatively cheap. It is not a lifetime investment. So it means you can change it pretty regularly. It's very responsive to fashion. It's not unlike women in the 18th century who use accessories to transform a garment, to keep up with fashion without having to spend a fortune. You can do just the same with wallpaper. But it was fascinating to me in, the, in all the letters that I read, thousands of them, to the uh, London wallpaper, Joseph Trollope and co. When people talk about wallpaper, even though you might think that this is a sort of mere superficial decoration, they're obsessed with the propriety, the decorum and the morality of their choices. So it became clear to me that there's a whole kind of system about decoration which has been lost to us. So whenever they talk about, you know, I want, I want a paper that's neat and pretty in a trellis pattern or neat and not too showy. So there's this very strong sense from middling consumers that, that your choices have to be appropriate, appropriate to your status, appropriate to the room, appropriate to the position of your house, is it in the country? So you've got a sense that underlying it was a whole system of understanding which is as much about status as it is about fashion. 
One of the things that surprised me so much is the dominance of green. Mm. So green is obviously thoroughly inoffensive. And this was confirmed for me when I was reading Jane Austen's letters. And she was saying she'd been around an exhibition and she'd seen a painting at the Royal Academy, which in her mind's eye was Jane Bennett. And she knew she was Jane Bennett because she was wearing green. And she assumed that green would be her favourite colour. And after all, Jane Bennett is one of literature's mildest heroines. So green is perfectly therapeutic. It's never the wrong choice.